Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that's very repealing. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hi, Corey. It's coming up to our fifth birthday, and that means that we're going to go back to our roots and talk about constitutional issues. Hooray! I'm really excited. We're doing a little bit of a series about what the government's actually doing, so we've, we'll talk a little bit about devolution and the wider question of the Union and the break of the UK and all that sort of wider constitutional stuff. Um... In a future episode, we've talked about levelling up already and what we're going to talk about in this episode then is what sort of constitutional reforms did the government have in its 2019 manifesto and which of them are being implemented. The government promised a few things in its manifesto and it's setting out steps of how it will achieve them. So, for instance, one of them, Steve, was to repeal the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act. We're now at that stage of a Conservative government where the government's gone so long, they are now starting to undo bits that they already themselves did um, see the railways, for another example. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we are. And the... I mean, the Fixed Terms Parliament Act is, is a bit of an interesting case study in and of itself because it was essentially put in place by David Cameron and George Osborne's Conservatives in in coalition with the Liberal Democrats. And one of the reasons that that was uh, put in was to, in effect, try and get a, an agreement to commitment from both sides that this this coalition would last, you know, the length of a parliament. Because otherwise you had a a major risk that, you know, the Lib Dems could pull out, the Conservatives could pull out, and then it's really, really easy for for the uh, for the government, the minority government at that point, going to be the Conservatives, um, to just call an election because they want to, um, which would probably not go well for anybody that wasn't the government in all likelihood. As such, it was put in place as a kind of a safeguard against against that. The long-term impact of it, I don't think was ever really thought about. Subsequent Conservative governments going, well, hang on a moment, this is making it a lot harder for us to be able to manage our party. Because one of the most effective powers in terms of party management that the Prime Minister had previously was the ability to go, behave yourselves or I'm calling a general election. And uh, what what can happen in those sorts of circumstances, essentially, is people go, oh crap, I might lose my job. Like John Major did that uh, a couple of times, I think, when his uh, premiership was on the rocks. Uh, and uh, so it becomes a very powerful tool for the PM to have. I mean, I find it as unbelievable as you, Steve, that somehow a government led by David Cameron would bring in a big constitutional change and then not really think about the implications of it. One of the issues, I suppose, with the British Constitution was that the calling of the election was always in the preserve of the Prime Minister. And there's some very legitimate issues about should it just be the Prime Minister that has the ultimate power or should it be devolved with Parliament? Equally, the, the calling of confidence issues and the Fixed and Parliament Act did have a, a weird... I remember we, we had to sort of speculate about this in the, the madcap Theresa May years about what issues are confidence issues and can the government lose a vote and at what stage does that mean that you might have to look at putting a, um, a, an, an alternative sort of confidence vote in your election 
how that how you get that. I think it's something like you had two weeks to form a government after you'd lost a vote or something. But uh, as you say, the way that this reform was brought in was quite artificial because I believe the amount of MPs that had to vote to trigger an early election was two thirds, which was just conveniently above the amount of both Lib Dem and Conservative MPs. Yeah. It was a mutually assured destruction button, in effect, or, or guard for the button so that they couldn't, the, no, nobody could just walk out and bring the entire thing crashing down. It was basically handcuffs to keep them, everybody locked together. It was only really purely a, a temporary arrangement. It's And actually, in terms of its use in future governments, it's not really proved much use in practice because since that coalition government, and again, that coalition government held for five years, partly because of the Fixed Term Parliament Act, and also, I think, partly... Nick Clegg wanted to prove that coalitions worked and also there was no good time <laughs> for um, either, to be fair, the Tories, the Lib Dems to, to get rid of the, the Act. But since then, in both 2017 and 2019, the government's found enough opposition parties who would support them to call the elections anyway. One of the biggest issues you've got with the Fixed End Parliament Act is that the government can still basically go come and have a go if you think you're hard enough say, we're going to call for an, ele- for an election, at which point the opposition can't really say no to that because if they do they look scared or and and it's really hard to make to make it to make the case no we don't believe an election should be held right now you just go along with it because it's like the easiest thing to do and because you need to demonstrate to show as the opposition that you're confident that you can win and you can't be be looking weak and so you end up just going along with it (laughs) I suppose it's hard in practice. On the other hand, Labour didn't in 2019. They did vote for it in 2017, but I remember one of my predictions was there is no way in Mary Hell that Labour and Peace would vote for an election in 2017 than they did. The reform maybe uh, it's not that drastic. I don't know how much it will change day to day. I think the main thing it will probably change is that the amount of column inches that we have from journalists speculating about the PM calling in an election will massively increase. Uh, this is uh, essentially an absolute gold mine for column inches and columnists um, because it's just going to give them a constant uh, stream of, of criminology in, in, in effect of who's up, who's down, is the Prime Minister able to uh, kind of get his way, is this the weapon of last resort, you know, all of those sorts of things. All the political backstage drama now has this this dangling sort of, sort of Damocles ab- above all of the other MPs. And it all just becomes a part of the almost like the plots and subplots rather than a meaningful constitutional element in and of itself. And the dams, it's already bloody started, hasn't it? We're already seeing, oh, is Boris Johnson going to call an early election in 2023? Oh, it might even be 2022. Oh, I wonder what the economy will be looking like. And I, I haven't missed it, I don't think, actually. No. I think in many ways the Americans have kind of got it right where it's just this is when the election happens. It's in it's in the Constitution. It's a set date. You go with it. Um, and you can't really change it. If someone stands down or, or whatever, you know, there are there are means to get somebody else in, in, in there or there's a line of succession or, or, or whatever. But, like, the elections are when the elections are and that's it um, rather than giving a, a tool which is just... For political manoeuvring these days rather than actually for the benefit of the country it's a little bit like a general description about pr isn't it is any is any political party going to change the system that got them in 
is any prime minister going to change a system that allows them to call an election when it's most favourable to them? It, you know, if, if a football team was able to say, well, actually, we'll cut the match at 53 minutes now with 2-1 up, or we're going to play on for the 150th minute until we get an equaliser. Why wouldn't you if you had that, that, had that yeah. capacity? You, you absolutely would. The, the real politic of the situation means even the most like principled individuals are going to have their principles bent a little bit in some capacity because, you know what, are you willing to make this the hill you die on? No, you're not. It's not worth it. So you bend on this one so you can get other stuff done. Mm. And your argument is that maybe Boris Johnson is not the most principled of politicians that's taken office in number 10. I mean, I, I couldn't say possibly say that, but... Uh... Yeah. Um, let's move swiftly on from that then too. I, I like the Institute for Government tr Manifesto Tracker because uh, it, it points out that a lot of the achievements of the Conservative Manifesto are promises to not do things. We're not touching this with a damn bars pole. Um, and one of those is they're going to defend the first-past-the-post system from and the goblins or whoever who want to try and reform it. Presumably they're helped in that by lots of news stories. And actually, I say this about someone who's quite enthusiastic about voting reform, but probably helped by stories with the effect of Labour must back PR or it dies, which I can't help feeling is a very good argument for the Conservative Party not to do anything about voting reform at all. Even though actually probably a lot of Conservatives are probably up for say, STV and local government elections. Yeah, 100%. You think the Manchester Conservatives aren't going to be willing to have like proportional representation, given it's what a one-party state, basically, up in Manchester. It's a one-man state. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> he is the North. The, the Conservatives like first-past-the-post. Not surprising that there are members of the Labour Party who are obsessed to the point of their own to, to the point of where they are actively inconveniencing the Labour Party with their uh, proportional rep uh, with their kind of like stances on proportional representation. And again, I say this is somebody who is in favour of proportional representation. Well, you could equally say there are people who are in, who are jeopardising the Labour Party with their support first past the post. But we'll we'll park that for a second. <laughs> when you have those states that are very much along the lines of as you say, support PR or Labour will die. And it's just like it's just like you look at it and go, but in order to put PR in place, we need to win an election. And to win an election, it has to be in the first past the post. Therefore, by winning an election to put into place PR, you've just demonstrated that your argument does not hold up. I suppose the other thing is, I, I can see why, again, as an enthusiast for voting reform, you might look at a lot of the other socialist parties in Europe, and you might look at their standing in the polls, and you might say, I'm not sure that moving to a more proportional system is the way to save a main social democratic party. Um, again, that's a wider debate about what Labour does, a strategy in the future. But but I cannot see Boris Johnson, that it's not going to happen. And it's, indeed, they are not just defending the first-past-the-post system, they are replenishing it because, um, as we talked about a couple a uh, few weeks ago, uh, when I had my glorious homecoming for the podcast after my sabbatical, the government are looking to abolish the supplementary vote system that is used to elect mayors and police and crime commissioners and replace it with first-past-the-post. Fundamentally being done because it's a lot easier for them to win uh, uh, those those sorts of elections under first past the post than it is with the supplementary vote because what happens is an awful what happens is an awful lot of um, 
second preferences tend to go to the left-wing parties, um, or rather left-wingers vote for the Greens or, I don't know, TUSC or, or, or whoever it is, and then they vote for Labour with that second vote, which then makes it very, very difficult overall for the Tories to actually win those elections. Not impossible, as we've seen, there's an awful lot of um, successful um, Tory candidates in, in the regional mayors, mayor, mayoralty, and, and, and we don't pay as much attention to them, but I'm sure amongst police and crime and commissioners as well. But it does make their life slightly easier if those are held and the first past the post. One of the main kind of criticisms against first past the post is that it's not a good way necessarily to choose a government because it's you know that you're, you're you're having to we're voting for a person or, or or whatever. But when it's a single position like mayor, police, crime commissioner, or, or whatever, you can just go. Actually, there is only one position to be filled. All of these different things, so you can kind of go. You know what? It does kind of work. It's a lot stronger in those circumstances than it is in other ones. So it's a lot harder to make the case for um for keeping a um a, a, a separate a separate system especially when we use that the first past the post in other elections and even more so when you have muck-ups like you did in in uh, london with the, the way that the ballots had been been produced which were viewed as confusing and you had like very high levels of like effectively spoiled ballots i think um throughout a lot of the city i disagree because what's obvious as we talked about a couple of weeks ago is Mayor elections in particular are very, uh, have been a way of some mayors forging a personality which appeals beyond party politics. Andy Burnham, Ben Hutch and Andy Street, other mayors called Andy, all very good examples of that. Given it's an individual, I think it makes sense for that person to have at least, at least nominal support of a majority of the people who have voted in that election. It's a, in many ways, it's a sort of personal vote. It's a personal mandate. You want to know that your mandate comes from a majority of the people in your area. And preferential voting is a way of, of doing that. And again, this is, uh, the supplementary vote is in many ways a much worse voting system than, say, an al the alternative vote. And I, I, I don't understand, I, I genuinely don't really understand why we don't have the alternative vote system where you rank all the candidates in order of preference and then it's about who gets 50% plus one. Whereas the supplementary vote system where it's just the top two that go in the runoff and then you have weird things like in, was it in Bristol there was a, a Labour Green runoff or something? And it's kind of, where are those Tory second preferences going? So I can see a, if, if the point of mayors and police and crime commissioners is you have an individual person that you want to have the majority vote for a mandate for your area. I can see we have a preferential system. Whereas the thing with alternative vote in a Westminster election is it could lead to some less proportional results in elections like 97 with lots of anti-Tory tactical voting. You might see Labour have an even bigger majority. Or if you had, say, Tory UKIP tactical voting in, in some areas. But so I can I can see there's actually a better argument to have a supplementary vote or a preferential voting system in a mayor election than there is in a Westminster-wide system. Yeah, maybe, but also an awful lot of what you've said there with, with a lot of, to, to, from what I'm remembering, with a lot of the arguments that were put forward for AV in the in the referendum then, and we know how well that went. But again, I think, just to relitigate <laughs> re this. We, haven't, we should do an AV referendum 10 years on podcast <laughs> and get horrendously drunk with our comrades at the time. But a lot of the people who were actively campaigning against AV, like AV had a no to AV, yes to PR 
uh, run on. Like part of that argument was that it wasn't a proportional system. And a lot of the reason you had such a lack of enthusiasm for it wasn't just a sort of, it's a way of the government kicking Clegg and the Tory machinery got, got into it. But a lot of people saw it as a miserable little compromise, kind of having um, flashbacks. And again, I think the the argument the, the campaign made was that it would that it was that it would make MPs work harder, which was just a naff argument. Um, whereas actually when on the doorstep you were saying, Well, we, we think that people should have uh, a majority of people who have backed their MP, that was fine. I, I think it was Norwich South that Labour got 29% of the vote in was always the one that we'd trot out because that was the area that had, had the, the lowest amount of support. Your eyes are glazing over. You you don't want to relive it. I'm, I'm quite happy to, to talk about this. Stuff. But we have different voting systems in different elections. In most countries with a bicameral system, they would elect their first chamber and their second chamber under a slightly different system. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. It's, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's unusual at all, but um, I think for, for purely from a, the politics perspective of it as well, because if, like, fun fundamentally, Labour does not want this to happen because, like, it, it's going to hinder them in comparison to the Tories who it will help. But I don't necessarily think it's going to be a very easy argument to make because you can just say, well, why shouldn't we use this? We use it for everything else. I don't think electorally it will change a lot. We said a couple of weeks ago... Green's got a lot of first preference votes in London and in um, in the West Midlands and in Britain, a lot of the bigger cities. Um, I imagine that those people, given they will have to then, as they have to do in our rubbish voting system, have to choose between their heart and their head, will probably plump for voting Labour in a straight yeah. Labour-Tory race. The problem, I think, then is, you again, is you philosophically it's nice to have politicians elected with the biggest breadth of support that you can but with mayors i feel like it's very explicit they're there to get stuff done it's yeah. a personal mandate it's all about their soft power knocking heads together yeah they, they, they are in fact the executive for that region so yeah no i would agree with that and so therefore you you want someone who's got that mandate where, where yeah i see exactly where you're coming from there but i think like it is a philosophical view of the mandate almost like like well, which most people aren't going to be bought into. Well, if we can't be philosophical on this podcast, and I, and I, I appreciate that you know the alternative vote campaign wasn't the greatest of successes in history, I'm not sure they've preserved the supplementary vote campaign. I imagine we'll get run over by an 80 seat majority. Don't see us winning over 45 Tory MPs. So never mind. Maybe they'll try and change the voting system in Scotland. Um, that'd be. I don't think they can though. No. no. Um, in terms of voting, the Conservatives said they were going to bring in measures that would make it easier for expats to vote, and they have, or are going to, which is nice. But they're also making it harder for people to vote with voter ID laws. And again, we're not going to talk much about this. We did a podcast on this uh, when it was first brought up a couple of years ago. Eric Pickles was in charge of it at the time, I believe. Yes, he, he was indeed. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes if you want to relive those glory days that we talked about it. Um, and actually, if you're listening to this, Patrick, hello. Um, we'd like to do a podcast looking at American voter suppression efforts as well. So we should make that happen. Not the voter suppression. Uh, we should make the talking about it happen. Um, issue is that it's trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist uh, in terms of, oh, you know, the, the fraudulent voting. 
Um, there are very, very, very few examples of it actually happening. As such, it's more of a culture war issue than, than than anything else, and it's a bit of a kind of a trap for Labour because if you end up arguing against it, it makes you sound like you are in favour of voter fraud, and they just go, "Yeah, well, of course Labour would be." Remember Tower Hamlets. I mean, that's it's a point of view, isn't it? I think it, uh, actually a, a manifesto from which they broke about the aid spending, where again it's morally not the right issue there are many reasons we should be spending international aid but actually those cuts were popular and again voter id is popular amongst a wide range of parties i think then the issue is how do you campaign against it and again it's something i'd like to talk about with patrick but an interesting uh view i saw from Eddie mayo hagan was that in america where they tend to try and uh Again, a lot of voter suppression efforts, especially around voter ID, and so you know you've got to have a toenail with your face in it or something before you can vote, um, has to be taken on the Wednesday. Where if you, what you don't want to do, as you're suggesting, is repeat the frame of, well, actually, voter fraud doesn't happen very often because that just puts in people's minds that there is voter fraud and it just reinforces that frame. And what you instead want to talk about is that voting should be easy. And it should be as easy as possible as it is for people to vote, and therefore we shouldn't need to have bring ID to polling stations. Yeah. I think that is maybe what we should try and and link on. And it's, again, it's just it's just an interesting um, thing for the Conservatives to to run on, is it? Do you ha- do you take a view that this is all sort of Boris Johnson authoritarian trampling on our liberties, all that kind of stuff? I think it's just more cultural nonsense, and it's a nice, easy—it's a nice, easy win for them, where they can say, "Oh, look, we're doing this; we're protecting our democracy," um, whilst at the same time, as um, you know, making—you know—there are there's like two perceptions of democracy. You've got demo- democracy as the act of being able to vote, like act, uh, like active democracy in that that sense, and then you've also got democracy as you know the ability to protest, all of those different things. Like the, what I think the conservatives are doing here, whether or not it's intentional or not. Um, is they're kind of they're, they are bringing in things that make it harder to protest um, in terms of um, bills which are kind of horrific in terms of what they can actually let the police get away with and what constitutes protest and, and, and all kinds of things. Um, so they're making it harder to do it in that way. So they so which is anti-democratic. But at the same time, if you bring that up, they can go, "Well, stop! You're you're, you're being silly here. Like we're not anti-democratic. Look, we're protecting voting." We're making it harder for people to be fraudulent. They're making it harder for people to vote. And the kind of people they're going to disenfranchise tend to be people who aren't going to vote for them. Yeah. But it becomes like they get a talking point about which they can use as a mm. as a notion. So to what extent it's an actual planned thing, I don't know. But it, it certainly is beneficial to them if they uh, if they play it right. And again, I think it's, it's one of those things where you look at that conservative voting coalition and it tends to be people who have more authoritarian views uh and again i get we've talked about this a few times before but that the especially those left-wing the 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 former labor voters who are switching tories tend to be more left-wing economically yeah in fact tend to be more left-wing economically than a lot of labor voters um at the moment but in terms of social attitudes and where they are on the authoritarian libertarian spectrum very much um strong state so i think it definitely plays into that um and it's it's probably better for them with a lot of the the cultural stuff actually again we've talked about that and we'll hopefully talk about culture wars in in the silly season but i don't think going on woke necessarily 
plays, but I think authoritarian issues might, and that's quite scary. Yeah. Well, what a happy note to end this podcast and democratic reform on. Well, we're back to normal. So, hey. If you want to hear us record more podcasts about how we're all screwed, you can back us on Patreon, can't you, Steve? You can indeed. You can head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne, fling us a few quid every month. Uh, you'll get access to uh, unique episodes, blogs, and various other bits and pieces as well. Um, so head over there, take a look, and uh, why not join our collective of champagners over there? Our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram and Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Plucky Good Times. I'm on Twitter at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy Potter. I, 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 in many, many ways, think the Americans have. <laughs> I'm not shutting the window. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be COVID compliant. Yeah. <laughs>